being kind to people, which is a form of respect, and treating everyone with dignity is a good start to trying to squash some of these iniquities. But I'm not so naive to think that that is the solution to you know, all the problems in the United States right now. This podcast contains the arguably witty banter of two friends, Skippy and Dougals, that like to debate about investing. The content is intended to be entertaining and for informational purposes only, not investment advice. You should do your own research and consult a financial professional before using any of the information in this podcast, and especially before investing. Today on the show, we have a very special guest, uh, a really talented author who's based in Tokyo, W. David Marks. Um, His latest book, which we really loved and we've talked about on the show already, is called Status and Culture. Our desire for social rank, how our desire, excuse me, for social rank creates taste, identity, art, fashion, and constant change. If you read the book, I think it may change the way you see the world. It certainly has for me. And there's a lot of good learnings here. David, I'm guessing this is the first investing podcast you've been on. Is that true? That is correct. Yes. (laughs) Well, we're really excited to have you here. As as I went through my research uh, this week, I believe you moved to Tokyo. You grew up in the Southern US. You're an American author. You moved to Tokyo first in 1998 for an internship. And the internship was really based on fashion and and Japanese fashion. So I'm curious if that kind of was the launching point now, 20 plus years later, that led you to this book. And if you ever thought you might end up writing a book about status and culture. Yes. And and again, thanks for having me on, on the show. So yeah, I grew up in the South, mostly in Pensacola, Florida, which is kind of nowhere. And Pensacola is, I mean, I guess 200,000 people, but the closest big city is New Orleans and Atlanta, six hours. You're kind of in this, you know, um, dead zone of, of culture. And I grew up on MTV and just thinking, you know, America is obviously the coolest nation on earth. I studied Japanese. I'd gone to Japan through a homestay program uh, in, from Pensacola in, in high school and really wanted to study Japanese, went to school, went to university, started studying Japanese, got this internship to work at Kodansha, the publisher. And they, I was just very vaguely interested in, in Japanese youth culture, had no context whatsoever for thinking about fashion and really didn't you know, think about fashion at all growing up in the 90s in the South, that, you know, people are preppy, but you don't consider that even fashion. You just consider it, I don't know, church clothes or or dress up. Uh, so I went to Tokyo. Everybody is immaculately dressed. Uh, streetwear is really big at that time, much before it gets big in the U.S. And uh, at the company I worked for, I was put in some manga for the first kind of uh, five or six weeks. So like every week I'd be at this different manga, but then the last two magazines were more or less fashion magazines. And I had no context for that. It was very strange to even see how much interest there was among men in particular in, in clothing. And I was very into music and I was into this musician named Cornelius and Cornelius took his name from planet of the apes, the film. And I had, I was flipping through the magazines one day at work because there's really nothing to do. And I saw a t-shirt with the Planet of the Apes uh, ape on it and said, I got to have that. Where can I get it? And someone said, oh, it's in the store called Nowhere. 
which is an interesting name. And then I went to the store and I got there at 5 p.m. I know it closed at six and there was like a literally like a velvet rope. And they're like, you can't come in. I'm like, what do you mean I can't come in? It's a store. That's the way commerce works. I go in and I buy things. So you can't come in. So I didn't understand that at all. And so the next day I went back at like 1 p.m. You know, I'm going to get a T-shirt. There was about at least a hundred person line outside of the store in August heat. And then once you got inside the store, there was another about a hundred people. And so this was the brand of bathing ape. And I ended up spending three hours to buy a single t-shirt for about $56 at the time, um, which was a lot more than I'd ever spent on a t-shirt. And so, you know, that summer I kind of got a taste of, first of all, fashion being this phenomenon for people in a, in a really, uh, uh, organic and live way that I didn't feel in the United States at all. And then second, it's that I actually kind of had my own touch point with it, which is, oh, I understand why people get into fashion when it's t-shirts, jeans, and sneakers. I wore t-shirts, jeans, and sneakers anyway, but now this was like the perfect pair of jeans, mm -hmm. and the perfect t-shirt, and the perfect sneakers. And that whole streetwear scene of waiting in line to buy goods, reselling them a year later for triple, all of that really started with Japan. But at, at the time in, in the United States, if you went to a brand like Supreme in New York, you would literally just walk in the door, you plop down $25 for a t-shirt and walk out. That, you know, that had not come to the US yet. And so I was interested in that phenomenon. And you know, that just started a you know, kind of intellectual project. And that's a really pretentious way to say it, but just, you know, a, a curiosity about what drives people to all want the same stuff at the same time, be willing to spend hours waiting in line for a t-shirt uh, or, or why things develop certain values over others. And in that process of understanding fashion, you start to understand how cultural change works. And you also understand that a lot of the research and analysis about cultural change is done by people who really hate fashion and really find fashion to be this regrettable part of human behavior. And so they kind of miss the story and they miss the understanding the dynamics of it because they just don't want fashion to exist. And so you get all these other crazy explanations for our behavior that focus on evolutionary psychology. And, you know, we have to go back to Africa a million years ago to explain why people wait in line to buy t-shirts. So all of that, uh, I, I just over time found that if you understood fashion, you understand culture. And uh, th this book came out of just a frustration that there was not a single book you could pick up to explain these principles. And, you know, by I hope that people reading it just, you know, you'll probably know most of it and, and you'll maybe have sensed at least 50% of it and just not had the words for it or not known how they all connect together. But, you know, what I hope with the book is just you can pick it up and then have a full understanding of how this whole world works and uh, and and be able to use these lessons in your real life. Yeah, the thing that really resonated with me, and this is why we invited you on an investing podcast, is there is a there's a dynamic that I don't, think I've seen articulated as well as you articulated it with the reason people would want to pay $56 for a t-shirt when they could buy another t-shirt for $3, right? And I've been toying with this idea of what I'd call a status and culture tax. And I want to throw it, uh, just bounce it off of you and tell you if it's something that you think about as well. So if you're in the market for a new car, you might be able to buy a Toyota car that's perfectly competent, that has leather seats and uh, dashboard and everything else, say it costs $35,000. Uh, 
a lot of people choose to buy a Tesla or a BMW or whatever else. Effectively, it accomplishes the same thing. It gets you point A to point B. And so I've been thinking about that difference in cost in my example there, if it's $35,000 to $60,000, you'd be paying $25,000, roughly something like a status and culture tax. Is my frame of thinking correct? And is that something you've ever kind of messed around with? No, I agree with this. I mean, the main thing about understanding consumer behavior is we tend to think of the purchase of objects or purchase of services as as being more or less functional and all based around practicality in the sense of you're going to buy a car because you need to go from point A to B. You're going to buy a television because you want to be entertained. It starts from there. And there's then this kind of creeping thing of, oh, you know, some people buy certain objects to show off, but they're sinful, you know, insecure people. The bad people do that. But like most people should be just buying, you know, a car to go from point A to point B. And then you start saying, okay, then why would someone pay more? And you have to go to that sinful status aspect of it. But the fundamental problem is that every single thing we buy communicates something about us to other people. And again, that's supposed to be something we say, well, you're not supposed to worry about that. You're just supposed to be yourself. You're supposed to buy whatever you want. Don't think about other people. The problem is that status is a real thing that makes our lives better or worse. And what I, you know, where I start the book is thinking about how status works and just trying to prove that your status position, the more you move up, the more social benefits you get and your life gets better. And the more you move up also, there's no point in which you don't want more benefits above you. So the more you go up, the more you want to keep going up and going down is really bad and it makes your life worse. And so if you think about just uh, that from a practical and logical point of view, people want to have more status because it makes their lives better. So now if we go back to the car, we go back to the television and you think about buying an object, there is the practicality and the, and the function of buying it for the thing that it does. But then there's also the status aspect that you can't ignore because you could buy a car for really cheap that has some sort of aspect about it that is going to get you ostracized from your community that is going to make your life worse. And that that also is functional to think about the status aspect of it. And so um, we need to stop thinking about status as just something that you should be able to suppress. There's a, I don't, do you remember the Tom Green show? I mean, this is like real, this is like yeah. from 20 years ago or something. There's one where like, I think he's, he airbrushes on his father's car, like a really lewd photo of naked women having sex or something. And the dad won't drive the car and, and think about that. So it's, you know, the car still goes from point A to point B. Why won't he drive the car? Because the car breaks social norms by having this horrible image on it. And so he's going to be embarrassed. He's going to get, you know, social repercussions for driving the car around. So he's angry about it. Um, so the other way around, which is that if everyone in your neighborhood drives a Tesla and there's this, uh, you know, the virtue of driving electric cars is really important to your community. If you're rolling coal, you know, you're going to make everybody pretty upset. And so to not consider that status aspect, I think, is really naive. And it's distorted our, our understanding of consumer behavior to not see that as primary in some way. So, yeah, there's a tax. I mean, I think a tax makes it sound like you know, regrettable. And certainly people don't want to buy things for status reasons. And that's why all good status symbols have an alibi, which is something you can say instead of I bought it for status reasons. So in the case of Tesla, 
you know, a Tesla is a sports car. It's a luxury good. But at the same time, you say, I really care about the environment. I bought a 100% electric car. Uh, you terrible people buying hybrids. I feel sorry for you because you're destroying the the, the earth where I'm, I'm on side uh, planet here. So, you know, if you give people those alibis that will use them, but then it all, then that just builds up more uh, skepticism about status. And, and so uh, it, it's complicated, but I, I think the good thing about at least thinking about it as a tax is that you admit that that status aspect is there. Yeah. There's one, one component of what you said that particularly struck me in the book was, was talking about like the more stat, I think Lassie was the like King Royal Lassie. I think and yeah. Lassie was the story you told in there. And one of the things that I started thinking about there was the compounding impact of status. And like the, as you just mentioned, the more you get, the more you want, but also the more you get, the easier it is to potentially get more dot, dot, dot until you overreach the wrong time. And then you can potentially fall off a cliff, which is what you just alluded to. Right. I think that's very similar to what can happen. And my brain was always going back to like the investing in, in capital side of things, which I think is very similar. Um, and speaking of capital, I'd love to get your your view on this. I liked that you, uh, the status criteria, tell me if I get these wrong, but the status criteria that I remember you laying out are their rare talents uh, and or abundant capital and or personal virtues. And with capital in particular, you named a few different types of capital, financial capital, occupational capital, et cetera, et cetera, and said, there's capital you're born with, or there's capital that you've achieved. And that by itself, I thought was interesting. But then you went on to say that the perception of the achievement of capital also plays in like an interesting role in status. Um, mm -hmm. I, I'd love to, to get more uh, insight into that. And also the question that came to my mind was what role does like perception of achievement like play in broader society? To kind of understand this, you have to start with a couple of things. So first, if you just go back to feudalism. So if you think about status as this universal human behavior and, and human way that society is structured, you've got to go back before capitalism to understand a bit about it, which is if you're in a feudal system, you have a rigid status system in which you have a, let's say, the king on the top and then titled aristocrats and then bourgeoisie who are making a lot of money, but they can't get up unless they get these titles and then you know peasants and everything under them. And this system is often called a scribe status. And if you also look at, let's say, a Native American tribe, uh, that will be organized where people who are the oldest just have the most status and the people who are youngest have the least status. So these ascribed systems basically set who gets status and who doesn't based on some sort of criteria of birth. And you can think about sexism and racism as problems also of ascribed status, which is to, to say that some people are, are more important than others in society just because of the color of their skin. So these ascribed status things go back to an older form of society. Where capitalism kind of comes from is the bourgeoisie start making so much money that they can buy themselves the benefits of status from the money itself. So there used to be all these things you only got if you could get, you know, if you're an aristocrat, you can do these things. The system really starts breaking when the bourgeoisie start buying themselves into the aristocracy. And then at some point you have all these bourgeois re revolutions, the French Revolution, the American Revolution, that says, okay, it's all about merit now. And if you can just be, a, uh, it doesn't matter, you know, how, how you were born, the, the caste in which you were born, if you can achieve, you can move up. And then once you have capitalism, that achievement itself kind of becomes symbolized in how much money that you make. And so 
then the whole system is 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 uh, complicated because you could make that money from really deplorable ways. But if you can use the money to buy friends, to buy entry to social clubs, to buy all the goods of a, of a rich life, well, who's to say you don't have status? So if people treat you as status because of your position, it could be infamy. It doesn't have to necessarily be uh, respect. Then you can buy your way into it. And that's what I think makes economic capital so dominant and important for determining status today. And now we definitely live in a world in which, uh, you know, you often hear kind of like, oh, this this person who did this terrible thing made a lot of money. Uh, isn't it despicable in some way? No, no. I mean, if you were that clever, you would have done it too, right? Like they they made this, they they did this total lowest common denominator thing that you would have been ashamed to do, but look how much money they made. And we say that often about social media influencers. You look at their videos and you're like, God, this is dumb. It's like, well, if you were smart, you would have done it, right? And so then it becomes kind of um, the achievement of the, money itself is such a uh, honorable thing that it doesn't matter how dishonorable it was, you know, it all works out. So the, the so in a capitalist system, economic capital is the most important way status is determined. From there, though, you get things like educational capital, because it just tends that people who are well-educated will likely be associated with more high status people will probably get a high status occupation occupational capital which is the different like a card shark and a professor may make the same amount of money but the professor will be respected more just because it's seen as a more um, respectful profession although that's probably changing with as much poker that's on television now so you know these these things change over time and how we value them change and also in different communities there's different uh, valuations of those uh, those kinds of capital, and you know, most certainly, where you think about hippies and countercultures, it's people who look at all these criteria and say, "I don't want to be part of a society that makes money the primary thing." So we're going to drop out, and we're going to make it much more about some sort of communal values. I guess just to sum up, you know, this is how status is determined. I think it's naive to say you can just be very talented and make uh, great contributions to society and still be given status. And I think if you look at, you know, an amazing high school teacher, I had like incredible high school teachers who changed my life, who turned me on to, to certain things and set my course of ambition and, and what I learned and all those things. They are not being rewarded in status the way that um, someone who just gets really rich off of speculation into crypto gets status probably. And so if you think about that difference, um, it can't simply be we we have a uh, a society that that values contribution alone. I think these forms of capital become really important. I think one of the foundational points you make early in the book, which is kind of obvious but really resonated with me, is um, that there's a fundamental human desire to fit in to your group. You kind of alluded to it with the Teslas. Like if you if everyone in your neighborhood has Teslas, then there's a social pull to fit in. Um, because it makes your life easier, because it increases your status. I'm just curious if you could talk about that as a foundational piece that enables the whole mechanism here. The the whole foundation of the book is almost based in part on this fundamental desire. So the word status is usually deployed to kind of complain about people who are looking upward and trying to outdo other people. So 
in the 50s, Vance Packard wrote a very famous book called The Status Seekers. And it's more or less just about this horrible plague on society of people wanting status and needing to move up. And we have these terms like keeping up with the Joneses, which is the sense of needing to buy all these goods in order to prove your status and move up. The thing about status is that we understand there's a high status and a low status and status is based on this hierarchy. And it means there must be people in the middle. And actually when you look at the sociological research of group dynamics, most people are in the middle. And we tend to ignore it because it's just our basic experience. And I think about it in terms of like a restaurant. If you go into a restaurant and you say uh, it's two two people, and you go and say I'd like a part, uh, you know, a table for two, they're like, great, here's the table, and and that is normal status. It's just the common courtesy or the common transaction that you get. If you go in as a VIP, they may go out of their way to get you the best table, to serve you things off menu, to you know, basically give it to you for free. But that only exists because there's some baseline and that that is called normal status. And that normal status, I think, is what's been ignored in the conversation about status because people really like having normal status. It's very important because the alternative is to have low status, which means you go to a restaurant and you don't get served at all. And that disrespect will make you angry. You won't get to have a meal. There's all sorts of bad things about that. So normal status is important. And then at the same time, there is a desire to have higher status because of these benefits. But the problem is that every status group has something also called status integrity, which is that people only want to give high status to the individuals who have a reason to have high status. So if you start going around saying, I need to be treated with better status, but don't have a reason for that, you may be punished for it and you go down to low status. So everybody has this conundrum in a sense that they want to retain the status they have and normal status. They, or let's say, even if you moved up a little bit, you want to retain what you have, but you also want to go higher, but you can't go, you don't want to go higher in a way that risks going down. And I think this, this dilemma, but also this dynamic, if you look at it on a macro scale, starts to explain where all these cultural phenomena come from. So in the case of normal status, uh, if you're in a neighborhood and everybody has a certain kind of car, there is this social norm of everyone should have a car this nice. And, you know, I live in Japan and everybody has immaculate cars that look like they've never been driven before. And I, I, I got a, I got a free car from somebody who was like leaving the country. And it was just like, do you want this old uh, Nissan station wagon? And I didn't have a car at the time. And so I was like, sure, I'll just take it. And it was missing a hubcap. And uh, I, it just sat in my, in my um, driveway. I, I often had to call the people to jumpstart it because it would die. And it was, it, but it was missing a hubcap. And I know it was so embarrassing to everybody in the neighborhood. And it ran without a hubcap. I mean, there was no functional problem. But I know that it just like really like stressed everyone out that there was this car without a hubcap in their neighborhood. So you don't want to be that person. Uh, and eventually I, I traded in for another car uh, because I got embarrassed by it. And so the, there's this social pressure on you to conform. At the same time, you may know, okay, so I'm going to upgrade to a Honda Fit, which I, I did. And that's an incredible car that I highly recommend. But, you know, I have a Honda Fit. And then you may see somebody has a BMW and you say, oh, okay, well, if I get a BMW, then I could be a king of the neighborhood because, you know, there's only one other person with a BMW. But then if everybody starts being, buying BMWs and the whole thing kind of increases and then the value of that 
goes down. And so these dynamics are really important for the reason groups all do things at the same time because the cultural behaviors and what you buy become a norm and they become in a almost uh, a ticket to confirming that you're going to get normal status from everybody. And maybe you'll still get it even if you don't conform like that, but people worry about it and it's just easier to conform than not to conform. Where, where do you draw the line or where's the, the line drawn between the person that gets the, the car for free without the hubcap and drives it around or the person that's worth a billion dollars or whatever the equivalent in, in yen is uh, who chooses to drive around right. uh, that car, which I think you called quiet shabbiness or something along those lines uh, in the book. Where's that line drawn? Who, who draws it? So this kind of segues into the idea of signaling, which I think has become a pretty commonly used term now. But the whole thing about status, if you're trying to get status, you're trying to appeal for status, uh, you can't just tell people, I deserve status, or do you know how much money I make? You have to show it through these quiet symbols, and that becomes a signaling process. The way it works in capitalist society is new money. So people who come from a humble background who suddenly make all this money are going to convert that money into status symbols very quickly in order to rise up. And so they're going to buy very expensive things to say, look at me, I can buy expensive things. This is a universal phenomenon. You see it everywhere. You see it across history. So it makes perfect sense that this happens. It's logical. People who are already wealthy tend to have a very strong reputation and that everyone knows they're very wealthy already. So their need to signal is lower because everyone already knows they have status. So they don't have to go around pleading for it. So when they don't have to plead for it, but then they have all these upstarts who are trying to come into their community and say, hey, I, I deserve as much status as this person who's been here for a long time because now I'm rich. One of the techniques you can use is to counter signal. And that is not to non-signal, but it's simply to try to devalue the signals that everyone else is using. And so you have a rich person, who a nouveau riche buying a Mercedes, let's say, to say, hey, I'm, I've arrived. I'm driving a Mercedes. So if the actual rich person that everyone knows is rich is driving a old Nissan station wagon with, with, with a hubcap, which was not, that is not true in my case, but let's sure. say they make that choice. Everyone will know that person could afford a better car, but they choose not to because they don't care because I guess cars are kind of tacky to be status symbols. It's, I mean, if, if this guy's doing it and uh, he doesn't even care, who are these pathetic people who are driving around? So the, there's something called the principle of detachment, which is high status people do not need to signal. So the act of signaling itself or the act of trying to get status makes you look low status. And so people who already enjoy a really strong reputation of having high status don't need to signal as much. And therefore, they can try to make other people's signals look like they're signaling and therefore violating this principle and they win. And so if you're in a very strong position, if you have high status already and you've had it for a long time and people are aware of that, and it gives you the right to make these choices like buying a really old car. And that's what you see also in almost as a universal principle in uh, old money communities, let's say in the UK or New England, and, and it's very famous. Uh, I think it's changed now just because old money is kind of faded as a class. But, you know, in the 60s, everybody knew 
some really rich person who drove around in a, in a terrible car. And I think Warren Buffett is kind of famous for that too. So, you know, no one, no one thinks like, oh, Warren Buffett must be doing badly because he's driving this old car. So, you know, once you have that reputation, it really does make you be able to do anything. Uh, you, you can do whatever you want, but at the same time, also, it's really important that at the top of the hierarchy, you are flexing your ability to do whatever you want. And so that can mean driving a really old car because, you know, who's going to, again, who's going to criticize it if they're obviously so successful in life. One thing this, uh, sorry, before you hop in, Skippy, no, go ahead. Uh, this is for a very different purpose, but one thing that came to mind when I was reading uh, this part of book, it took me back to death of a salesman, the play. So mm -hmm. stick with me here. Yep. <laughs> uh, but one of my favorite scenes in that was you have Willie Loman, who's always talking about like how great everything's going to be, how successful his family's going to be, and they always fail. But you know, his neighbor, Charlie, and there was a scene where Willie finds out that Charlie's son is going in front of the Supreme Court, I think it was. Mm -hmm. And uh, and Willie's like, he didn't even mention it to me. And Charlie says he don't have to because he's going to do it. And it like that that scene came back to my mind again. It's it's that that wasn't so much of a status thing, but it just came back to me of like if you have it, you don't need to flaunt it. I, I have a quick comment on that, which is I I think that was the general principle. And you know, one of the critiques of the book is that I'm only describing the 20th century, and that you know, so much of this is is not true anymore. And I do, and I I mean, I try to get to that in the last chapter to show how these things have changed. But I think the internet has really made it difficult to not flaunt it if society basically is the photos on Instagram instead of real life, mm -hmm. then by refusing to appear on Instagram, which is not a documentary, right? People have to create these photos. They have to choose to put up the photos. The act of putting up the photo itself, it cannot be detached where it's like, if you just show up at a party, Yes, you chose to go to the party, but the visuals that you give off, you're just giving off. You're not, you're not saying, hey, everybody look at me. Where the problem with the internet is that nobody sees you unless you do some sort of intentional act. So you can do this kind of humble brag, faux detached form of Instagram that many of us do, but it's just a harder proposition. And then I think the people who have really dominated social media platforms are strivers. I mean, and I think that word has a somewhat of a pejorative connotation, but you know, they're people who really want to be the most famous influencers and working really hard. And they're the least detached people in the entire world. And I, I recently uh, linked to some 16 year old kid who made, you may know who he is, but he like made all this money drop shipping. Um, and it's just like him sitting on the hood of a Mercedes being like, I bought this for my parents. And like every video is like, here's how you can get rich too. And, you know, there's zero detachment whatsoever, but I think that that ethos is more pervasive now than what I just described of like, oh, you've got to be detached to have high status. So one of the, you know, things that has changed is that there's, it's just harder to be detached and everybody is having to signal more and it stresses a lot of people out but it also ends up devaluing signals because if everybody is like, look at me on vacation in Italy, then going on vacation in Italy becomes devalued because you're seeing everyone else do it. So uh, it's, 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 it's a completely new dynamic and uh, we're not quite used to it yet. You have me thinking, cause I'm not on Instagram in part for some of the reasons <laughs> that you mentioned there. Um, it, it's a very interesting space. 
So you, I think you did such an artful job. And I want to come back to this when you talked about new money, chasing old money, and then old money, showing new money who's boss by not having to flaunt the, the status symbol. But the thing that fascinated me most was just, we've talked about it a bunch, but the tie to purchasing decisions that status and culture um, takes part in. I, I have to drop some of these celebrity references that you dropped because I just think they're great. So you mentioned Nas and Kanye, right? And so when Kanye first signs his record deal, he goes to Nas's jeweler mm -hmm. um, simply to buy some jewelry to show that he's made it, right? But now you have Drake take this to an entirely different level where Drake has a two-story closet with handbags for his wife who he doesn't have. <laughs> and if I read it correctly, I think one of the handbags cost $300,000. Yeah, it's like the most exp expensive Birkin bag you can have. I mean, talk about signaling. Is it, that's just bizarre. You also have Johnny Depp saying when someone reported that he was drinking $30,000 of wine per month. Him saying, uh, I would want to get this quote right. It's <laughs> insulting to say I spend $30,000 a month on wine because I spend far more than that. Yep. But I mean, they can. I mean, I think that's the thing is that uh, this is called conspicuous waste and and Veblen, you know, talks about it in theory of the leisure class, but it also goes back to ideas of potlatch and you know, tribal society showing how dominant they are by, you know, feasting their enemies with, you know, so much that they kind of drown in it. It It, it is universal and, and it makes perfect sense, again, why people do it and celebrities themselves, you know, I mean, you get to a certain point or you're with so much money that there's really no place to spend it. I mean, there, I, I think, um, in, in the investment world is probably a little different, which you make your millions and billions, and then you still want to go out there and, and do more investing because it's not, I'm going to, I'm going to buy the investment propaganda, but it's not just about making money. It's about, you know, in, empowering these companies and, and making the world a better place. So, you know, if, but if you're Johnny Depp and you can drink $50,000 worth of wine every month, why not? Yeah. I mean, so, but celebrities have become also the new nobility and I don't think that's that's not a particularly new or profound idea, but it is really true, which is that our our touchstone for what wealth looks like is celebrities and uh, and billionaires. And that is also, I think, devalued old money because old money used to be what we considered to be what wealth looks like. And the interesting thing on TikTok, and Taylor Lorenz just did a story about this, but um, there's an old money hashtag on TikTok, but they fundamentally don't understand what old money is. They think it's just the people who are even richer than new money. And so it's like, look at this giant yacht, that's old money. And so there's been this kind of distortion of understanding what it is because it just doesn't play a world, like a, a role in our world anymore. And when I grew up, even in the 80s, you know, the Intellivision commercial was George Plimpton. And George Plimpton was kind of a caricature of New England old money. Um, you know, I think his family was, you know, people who came over on the Mayflower kind of level of old, old New England society. And he spoke with this, what's called the Mid-Atlantic accent, where everything is like, you can't tell if he's doing a bit because he sounds a little British. 
but that was a real world that existed and it and it influenced fashion and style through ivy and preppy and all these these trends and we just live in a world now where celebrities and startup founders makes so much money that it dwarfs what it means to be oh this person is studying art because they're a trust fund kid you know that used to be a very high status thing it's like they their trust pays them one hundred thousand dollars a year to do nothing and you'd be like wow that's the richest person in the entire world and now it's like well that's nothing because someone just made a billion dollars off an app that has never made a profit ever and never will or made $10 billion off of that. So, you know, when people are making huge sums off of IPOs and uh, these investments or acquisitions, it really does make these old money families look like they're kind of nothing. I, I just got to, I got to ask this. So Kanye or yay, depending on how, mm. how up to speed you are. So in, in the book, you talk about how uh, I might get this language wrong. But capital, like with capital, you can figure out it gets you membership in a group, right? And that membership, like, then gets you status. Um, what group is Kanye currently in? Because I go back, I go back about you know whatever it was fifteen years ago, which is when he made the uh, George Bush does not care about black people statement. Right. And during that music, that with his music plus that, it was like he was uh, central to hip hop culture as well as black culture at the time, and. Then, then it became like the made America, make America great again. He just bought parlor. What, when you have someone that starts to like changes groups so frequently, right. But also has all the financial capital, right. That kind of exists out there. What's what, what group does he belong in and what happens next? You can separate it from Kanye, but I just had to grab onto that one. I mean, Kanye is so difficult because I mean, this anti-Semiticism is like so beyond the pale that it's hard to say like, well, you know, here, here's a strategy. I mean, it, 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 when people talk about the mental illness, that maybe is part of it, but also like the idea of just glumming onto the worst ideologies that exist is, is so bizarre. I think Kanye was interesting a long time ago in that, yes, he was, he came up in the hip hop world, but I think he really built this bridge of, hip-hop to then street culture then to the luxury brands and luxury's never you know never gone back from that i mean he he really you know his disciple virgil then goes designs for louis vuitton these luxury brands used to be about elegance now they're about more or less streetwear they make really expensive streetwear and so kanye was key to that entire shift as well and he was you know, getting a lot of status by not just simply being the next big rapper, but to take that cultural influence out of that world and try to take over other sectors like luxury. And uh, and he succeeded for a while. And then why why did he go off the deep end from there? I I don't even want to speculate. But certain, I mean, I, I, the uh, it, it kind of is such a weird example. It's hard to hard to kind of go anywhere from there. But I would say that there are many people who. Uh, let's take Michael Jordan because Michael Jordan's probably easier. But you know, Michael Jordan becomes so king of basketball that he's like, I got to do baseball now because what other challenge exists? And it, it makes sense that if you just hit this status peak in your own world and you want to keep going, you want to go to a different field and do really well there. And I, 
I had the honor of watching Michael Jordan strike out at a minor league baseball game in Nashville and like, I don't know, 90, whenever that was like 97, 96 <laughs> or something. So, uh, and like, you know, the, it was a crowded stadium because everybody wants to see Michael Jordan play baseball and then he gets up and strikes out and that's it. You know, that's his entire uh, contribution to the, to the game. So that makes sense. And then it makes also sense why he went back to basketball and he's like, all right, I'm back and I'm going to be great again. Uh, or Ashton Kutcher being a actor who wants to be an investor, you know? So um, people, when they get to the top of their field, you know, and they feel like they have boundless talent, they just want to go to some other field to show, Hey, I could have done that as well. Um, so that status drive, I think is probably what explains it, at least the, the field hopping you see among uh, really successful people. But Oof, Kanye's it's its own disaster. Yeah, that's a tough question, Diggle. I don't think that was fair to ask the Kanye <laughs> question. In any sense, the Kanye question is a, a tough one these days. Uh, I have a leap of faith that a question I want to throw by you, and then I want to talk about your conclusion to the book because you have some really interesting concepts in there. Um, so I may be the only one, so bear with me, but as I was reading this book, I was going, this book should be condensed a little and given as a manual for middle school. And I'm <laughs> going to assume you had the typical American middle school experience. For me, middle school was the first time that brands mattered, um, that how you looked mattered, that how you acted seemed to matter. Elementary school was about who you're friends with, who you like. And middle school seems like it just is awash with all these new ideas of effectively status and culture. I'm curious if it, if you've ever thought about that, if anyone's ever brought that up to you and maybe why you think that our judgment or our fundamental desire to fit in happens right around middle school age for your average American. And maybe it's your average individual around the world. I'm sure there's some good research about why teenagers in particular start, you know, get getting interested in their own status. I I definitely agree. I think it's when you become aware that there's certain behaviors that are arbitrary that suddenly, you know, that's cool and that's not cool. But, you know, a year ago that was cool. Or the word poser was a really big put down when I was in middle school. So, you know, there's a lot of people wearing a certain brand or, you know, wearing a skate brand or or a surf brand. And then suddenly somebody else is wearing it, but they're a poser. And it's like, well, they're wearing the same thing, but it's like, well, they're wrong and you're right. So you start getting all those concepts in middle school and it goes on to high school. And I think high school is usually when people say, um, you know, that's really where you first understand status hierarchies. To, to bridge to something that I think about quite a bit is these... The, the principles that I lay out in the book around how status works and <clears throat> how it connects to culture and, and our cultural behavior and taste and identity and all these things. I, I think if, you know, some people may learn them over time from certain fields, but a lot of these lessons are in the margins of certain academic fields. And you certainly don't get to them until you get to college. And then in college, you have to pick the right major and then maybe you know i didn't get to most of them until grad school to be honest so in grad school you start reading veblen and bordeaux and and all of this and then you you know i had to really 
spend years reading different books to figure out where this information even existed because there's not a field of status studies. And cultural studies tends to be more on kind of uh, literary theory side, but it doesn't really deal with the social dynamics as much as, as I would have liked. And so I had to find the part of sociology and social psychology that this research was going on. But I think about all the time, we should teach people, especially kids, these lessons earlier for them to understand it because it affects all of our lives. But we won't. And the reason we won't is because ultimately, if you start understanding how arbitrary these worlds are and you understand how status dynamics work, then it kind of pulls pulls the curtain back and you start then de deconstructing everything. And it's really difficult to indoctrinate children. I mean, that's a very strong term, but it's very hard to teach kids anything once you start being like, okay, but also it can all be deconstructed because obviously it's a social construct. And so there's a reason we don't teach anybody this until they get old enough is because then you you know, you go into chemistry class and you're like, well, isn't this, I mean, didn't Thomas Kuhn basically say that this is all paradigm and, you know, or yes, I guess we're in the atom paradigm, but it could be totally different. And this is, aren't atoms just metaphors really? So, you know, the, there's, I think a reason we don't teach these things because they, they are super destructive to social cohesion in a sense, but they're also massively empowering at an individual level because, these things work on voodoo and they work on ignorance. And, you know, especially when it comes to bias and racism and all of these things, they get baked into social conventions that we just accept as the normal order of the world. And what's really key is to show that they come from somewhere, that, that somebody made this decision or these values really benefit one group over the others. And we don't have to have it. It's arbitrary. We can have a different social norm. We don't have to live like this. So that's you know where political act activism comes from and, and where social change comes from. And so, yeah, you do pick these things up. But I think we're weary of teaching high school kids these lessons, and there's really no infrastructure to do so. But I, I've thought about it a lot, is how do you make a version of this book that you make every high schooler read? Um, and, you know... I don't know what effect it would have on, you know, a bunch of jocks and nerds. I don't know if that's the way this world still works, but, you know, <laughs> would, would the cool kids be like, oh God, we're, we're, we're being horribly oppressive in our status and we've got to be yeah. nicer to everybody. Probably not. Or, you know, would the, would people at the bottom rise up? I mean, I certainly think if you look at the language of incels, the incels have this really, dark fantasy of status. And I think Jordan Peterson also is somebody who has really kind of pushed this kind of dark hierarchy idea onto people. And like the idea of incels of like, everything's this number ranking and there's these chads who are above you, like stealing everything from you. I mean, so that is, that's very dark status thinking. And I think what's, what's important to me is not to talk about status as, you know, we're doomed but simply to understand how it works because you can change it. And we have changed it over time as a civilization. We're not, we're not, I, that, that's my problem with the evolutionary psychology reading of all this is that it more or less says, Hey, we're, we all have status the same way that gorillas have dominance hierarchies and Hey, that's, that's just the way life is, but it's not, I mean, we, the, we're not describing dominance hierarchies. We're describing what we think should be, given esteem because of the contribution to society. And that changes over time. And who we give esteem to changes over time. And we do have power to control that. 
I absolutely love that answer. Thank you. You also, you described the reason that most of my teachers always, I just got on their nerves because I was the, aren't Adams just a metaphor kid yeah. always in a, in class uh, to grab on to the arbitrary point. I, I really loved when, so the arbitrary point by itself, I think is awesome. And you talked about protecting the arbitrary as like what people with status would do something that this is not quite as as much of a stretch as my Kanye question, but it might be a little bit of a stretch. So we can we can take it as it is. Uh, something that came up is this made me think about when you have I don't know how much you st- you study the, or follow the stock market, but you have like AMC, all the meme stocks, right? Like mm-hmm. AMC, that you end up with these overinflated valuations that are based on question mark, right? Mm-hmm. They're they're effectively based on groups believing they want to yep. hold this arbitrary valuation up, and. Then you also have examples in the book of people that are contrarian or groups that might be contrarian against against the arbitrary, I'll call it. And the question that came to mind is, when does contrarianism succeed and when doesn't it? I mean, so, you know, in the book, I talk as an example of. OK, so if you start with like a social norm, so a social norm is usually based on some sort of arbitrary behavior. And, and I don't mean arbitrary as in meaningless or valueless i mean it in the specific kind of linguistic sense that one one coordination strategy you can focus everyone on one coordination strategy over another and you can have both and still be a society or you can still have both and and be a language and so you know there was a rule a social norm in the early 20th century that women can't smoke indoors men can but women can't um, and it wasn't a law as far as I know, but it was just a social norm. And that was obviously a social norm that connects to, you know, a, a general kind of misogyny and, and sexism. So, you know, you can have that norm. And if you want to get rid of the norm, people have to break it and stand up to it. But the first person to do so. So I in the book, I talk about the anarchist Emma Goldman. She lit up a cigarette with some friends and she got kicked out of the restaurant. and someone's got to, you know, do the, do the first uh, norm breaking in order to break the norm. And so she's a contrarian and she gets punished for it. And, you know, she was supporting all these anarchist positions that were so dangerous uh, in the minds of American authorities that they deported her to Russia. Right. And so, you know, you can be a contrarian, but there is a social risk to it. And, and there's, there's a lot of good research and books about, you know, what it, in, in, I love the use the word tipping point, but the word tip, there's a tipping point in that at some point you're going to get at the beginning, you're going to get punished for breaking the norm. And at some point there's so many people breaking it at one time that if you, if there's a revolution and you stay home, then everyone will remember you're the person who stays home. But then how do you get to that point is one of the central questions of revolutionary political theory and you know how how do you how do you create that norm and how do you bundle enough people together where every, no one will get punished because everybody did it at the same time so i i think that's what it is and and the thing also when you go to contradictory ideas and this is why i think it's really naive to look at fashion and cultural change without looking at status which is that being a contrarian or doing something different is really easy so if every man wears pants and you're like, well, I'm not going to wear pants. I'm going to wear 
backwards shorts or something. I don't know what that would look like, but you know, I'm going to wear something that's like no one else on earth wears. You can just do it. It's really easy. Or, you know, like crisscross wore their clothes backwards, you know, it's and like, they were different. Like we need to give crisscross their own look. Great. They're going to wear their clothes backwards. Okay. So now you have a hip hop group wearing the clothes backwards and that was different. That's it's so easy. And we don't do it because it's ridiculous and people first of all it's norm breaking but it's also norm breaking so obvious that like all you did is that you're supposed to wear your clothes forward and you put them on backwards and you think that's the innovation and so first of all the contrarianism when it looks as arbitrary as the thing you're trying to rebel against also doesn't work the reason that things are powerful is because they don't seem arbitrary it's like well of course you wear your clothes frontwards there's a fly on your pants for a reason there's a button on the front instead of the back for a reason. So if you put it backwards, it's just stupid, arbitrary fashion. So we don't like things that are arbitrary and contrarian just to be contrarian. There has to be some sort of reason. And this is why if you look at modern art or something, you have the succession of movements who take one arbitrary you know, perspective of art and then have another arbitrary perspective of art. But there's always a reason of if we live in a world in which we understand three-dimensional uh and fourth dimensional ideas, Einsteinian physics, it's so jejun to paint only in two dimensions. We have to add the third dimension. There needs to be cubism or we we need to add the fourth dimension and create futurist art. And so those were changing the rules and the conventions of art, but doing it for a reason that was, you know, more updated. And so the contrarianism only gets its taste you know first path to success by trying to claim that it's a better idea that it's not just an additional arbitrary one but then the second is that when people high status do it then it takes on that social value and it's well if these high status people are doing it this arbit- this new arbitrary yeah. way must be the better way and then there therefore it, it changes and and that is the you know I think it's a really simple idea. And obviously I think everyone knows it, uh, which is just that things with prestige bias, which is not a word I use in the book, but I know in different fields it's used. If it has a prestige bias, it's much more likely to be adopted. And then therefore culture changes in that direction. But what I was trying to do with the book is just show how far you can take that idea. So if you just look at the way that the status value makes everything seem better, then all of our aesthetics and all of our ideas get infected by it to a degree our brains can't understand. The next question, and maybe it's, I'll just actually say what you said, and then I'd love for you to dive in a little bit de- more deeply. Uh, in the book, you state that ultra-stratified countries produce fewer complex inventions. It blew my mind when I read it, and then I went, I don't know if I fully know what it means, but it's really insightful. Uh, if you if you wouldn't mind elaborating, it'd be great. So if you have a society in which there's a small elite and most people are very poor, and you think about what it takes for that elite to show off that their elite and no one else is, all it takes is money. And so if you have an impoverished country in which the only wealth is extractive, for example, the people who have access to that extractive wealth, oil or whatever minerals, they can be super rich simply by having more money and more material goods. And the thing about using economic capital as your main signal is that it's very uninteresting in its simplicity because when i think about so let's go back to drake's house so drake has this giant house 
And we know who Drake is. We know why he's famous. And maybe we look at, you know, the chandelier or the Birkin bags and know the codes and say, oh, it's really interesting. They own so many Birkins because Birkin's the most expensive bag. And, and you have all this information you're basing that judgment on. But if you just take a child from Mongolia who's like three and you put them in the house and you say, is this person rich or poor? Then it's obvious that they're rich. And so the thing about these overwhelming uh, conspicuous consumption status symbols is that they require no codes. They require almost no pre-existing information for you to say this person is elite because they own it. So when you go to somewhere that is, let's say, low educational capital and quite stratified, the symbols are very simplistic to make sure everybody knows who is elite and who's not. But also there's really no requirement to go deeper than that. When you start getting more stratifications, you start getting a counterculture, you start getting different groups that are battling each other then there's a lot of people trying to create status symbols that are based off of information and, and the symbols themselves and manipulating the symbols rather than just showing off how much money they have. And so if you have kind of a spectrum between economic capital and cultural capital, maybe both of them are oppressive in the way that you know they're being used to demonstrate elite status over non-elites. But the cultural capital at least is based off of having to understand symbols and understand and manipulate them in new ways that are hard to understand. And then from there you get things like really complicated literature and art and music. Um, and you don't need necessarily the status system to create complicated artistic practice, but it, it really helps when a group of artists, for example, say, Hey, you don't understand you are lower status because you don't understand how complicated you know serial music is you have to you, if you can appreciate this then obviously you're a very high status person but that requires somebody going off and making this very complicated new form of music so um the in in a society that's just very stratified it becomes so much more about money and money is boring and i think we all know that yes. and sure money can make really fancy things but if somebody has a giant boat and then you buy a bigger boat. It's just, you know, it's literally like every three-year-old in the world would know that's the richer person because they have the <laughs> bigger boat. Um, that there's just no culture going on there. It's 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 very um simplistic. So that, I think that's what I'm talking about. I think there's probably exceptions to this. There's probably really exceptional music in particular being made in very stratified societies. Um, but in in general, the the group that has probably contributed most to or the groups that have contributed most to cultural progress is the wrong word, but just like cultural diversity over the last, you know, 150 years have been in these societies in which they're marginalized for whatever reason. And they're creating these symbols in order to retake power in that marginalization. Yeah. The money is boring quote. You heard it first on the Skippy and Dougal's Talk Investing podcast. I love that one. Um, the last question for me, you, in your conclusion, you talk about inequities in cultural norms, and this is the same. I might read the quote to you and have you okay. uh, add some commentary. Cause I really liked it. You said we can support the equitable distribution of stra status through taking control of our personal social interactions and collective values. The thing about how status works is that you get it from other people. And the main form that you get it in is respect. And that respect can manifest in different forms like deference or giving people favors or you know even giving them power and it, a lot of it's involuntary in that you know when if you're in your office with your feet up 
and your boss comes in. This is this is goes back to the fantasy world that there used to be um, workplaces with offices instead of just open desks. But um, so if you've got your feet on your desk and your boss walks in, do you keep your feet up or you put them down? You put them down, right? And so you know those are involuntary actions you take based off of status. But you know if you take control of it, which is to say, if if the status hierarchy is created from me personally giving people stat people esteem above me and showing that esteem and and denying people beneath me and I, I'm putting that in air quotes by denying them respect one of the ways you can equalize is to start respecting people that may you may consider to be lower status so that you equalize it yourself and on like this is not a new idea this is literally from the bible i mean so like, the entire christian doctrine is like lepers bring them on like yeah, you know yeah. le lepers are are supposed to be extra you know outside of our society actually let's you know take all these people that are um ostracized and not ostracize them and treat them with respect so if you know our enemy instead of treating them like an enemy you love them so this is not a new idea, uh, but th this is a kind of utopianism saying that if we ourselves don't respect, don't, uh, that's not the wrong word, if we ourselves don't perpetuate these status inequities ourselves, then we can make the, you know, a, a society that is more equal. Now, the, I mean, the problem with enacting social change is you can't just say like, hey, everybody be nicer to people. Thanks. Done. Um, it's obviously more difficult than that. And there's still legal you know, legal inequities, there's still the fact that capital is you know, unfairly distributed through society. So there's all sorts of political things that we have to do as well. But, you know, one of the things living in Japan and, uh, and, and Noah Smith talks about this quite a bit, is just there is a more equitable distribution of respect in that service workers take their jobs very seriously and people treat them with respect because of that. And so, um, you go to a fast food restaurant and they're, you know, the person working there is really high res respecting that role. And you go in, you're like, wow, they're in a uniform and they're like really respecting it. I will also respect them. And so, you know, if our society is going to be mostly service jobs and then we, and we have this ethos of service jobs are a lower status job, then the people in those jobs are, really disrespecting themselves and they hate it and they have to show i hate this job i'm not you know i'm not going to do it well because i'm above it and then the people who walk into the store also are like well obviously i don't respect service jobs and it's horrible so then you just create these status inequities of not respecting everybody whereas you know and and you know we we love labor in this kind of 1930s like a guy with a giant hammer and like, you know, yeah, labor is great when they're, you know, on the factory line at GM. Uh, mm -hmm. But, you know, this the actual working class now is all service jobs and we and it is not a well-respected industry. And I don't mean respected in people's minds. Like, I think, you know, there's just not as much respect in the actual locations where in somewhere like Japan, you don't feel status inequity as much because everyone seems to be getting respect. There's obviously economic inequities in Japan and they're they're kind of buried but you get a sense that society works better because you don't um you get a sense that everyone's just trying to treat them everyone well and that is one way to do it the other thing i talk about is if you are high status you get you perpetuate the hierarchy by taking the benefits and so it's one thing for a low status person to say don't replicate the hierarchy by 
being mean to people above you because you there's so much value in sycophancy that it's really hard to tell someone don't like just be be a jerk to everybody high status because they will, their career will go poorly their life will go poorly so i think it has to also start with people with high status have to do a better yeah. job of of being respectful to people who uh may be lower status and then at some point those those ideas are in people's heads of hey this person's high status this person's low status start to equalize a bit as well so i i think this is a bit utopian to be honest like i don't i'm not saying like hey this is just you know the, the book is not a normative this is how to fix the world kind of book sure. which i think most are and i tr- i tried really hard to be super objective the entire time and not make these naive kind of like all we have to do is this and everything's better but i do think that uh respect is free in a certain degree i you know it, it is true that you can't respect everyone for it to still be respect or you can't yeah. be benefits and have you know uh if you say great news the vice president and the secretary at this company all make the same amount of money um it's it's very clear that the vice president will probably go elsewhere because they're not going to feel the respect in the salary but just being kind to people which is a form of respect and treating everyone with dignity is a good start to trying to squash some of these iniquities but i'm not so naive to think that that is the solution to you know all the problems in the united states right now yeah no i I love it david well thank you so much for coming on the podcast this has been like such a enlightening conversation and exactly what i thought would thought it would be based on the book the last question that we ask all our guests on the show and it's a it's a little hokey one, but I, I hope um, you get the the meaning here. Is um, we ask you to think about your dream retirement and how that differs from your life today. And I think in an ideal case, maybe it's pretty similar. But we'll let you uh, fill in the details there. My dream retirement would be the ability to only write books and not have to work uh, to fund my writing of books. So I have an infinite number of book ideas inside of me. And uh, I'm always incredibly impatient to get to them. And the thing that slows me down is literally just having to do any other work. So um, I would love a retirement that just allowed me to do that. And, uh, you know, my my self-motto is be your own trust fund um, because, you know, I, I work I work hard to pay for my trust fund activities of writing uh, cultural histories. But um, it would be great to just actually have a trust fund or a retirement fund that would allow me to to live like a trust fund kid and uh, i write, i write gotta books. jump in there so first of all to our listeners go buy the book and help david achieve his retirement <laughs> dream right here and, and second of all if you need investment advice you know the place to come the skippy and Dougal's podcast we got you covered the market being not so hot this year has not been uh, great <laughs> for my retirement and but i'm sure my, that's not just a me problem Well, thank you again so much. This is a great time. Thank you so much for your interest in the book and it's been great questions. 